Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. That's Donald Fagan, one half of Steely Dan. Uh, his evocation of 1950s, 1960s, fallout, shelter, culture. I grew up in the same era, born in the 50s, grew up in the 60s. I can tell you that nuclear annihilation was kind of almost the only thing anybody worried about or prepared for, at least in my, my misty, murky memory of things. Quick story. So uh, for a while as an adult, I lived in and wrote about a town where there were these two brothers. And one of them was kind of a a civic leader in the town and also kind of a very sort of um, um, economically minded Yankee guy who had a bunch of different businesses that he ran, including an oil delivery business. And he had this brother who was not a 'er ne'er-do-well or a wastrel, but he wasn't really all that focused on things. He was kind of a dreamy, creative kind of guy, never necessarily found his his true employment niche. And so brother number one, you know, in order to give him some work or something like that, at one point had him driving these oil delivery trucks around, and he went to a place and found the spout and started pumping the oil. And boy, he just pumped a lot of oil into this thing, and he eventually— discovered that he had filled somebody's fallout shelter with oil. So that's the kind of thing that happened back in the day. Um, You know, we live at a different time now. As I mentioned before the news, in 2019, we did a whole show about so-called preppers, people who are um, actively preparing for the worst, without necessarily knowing exactly what the worst is going to be, because there's a lot of different worsts. Um, and, and it was an interesting show and it, in an odd way kind of prepared us for what would happen less than a year later uh, when, in fact, we did have uh, the worst on our hands. We had a pandemic. So we want to kind of check in with this whole mentality now. And, and I, I, I'm guessing more of us are preppers. <laughs> uh, I mean, for a while, everybody was kind of a prepper. Uh, and we want to see what that means. We have five guests, so we need to, I need to stop babbling is what needs to happen. Uh, so joining us here in the first segment, uh, Anna Maria Bounds, a professor of sociology at Queens College and the author of Bracing for the Apocalypse, an ethnographic study of New York's prepper subculture. And Dr. Chris Ellis, uh, a colonel in the U.S. Army based in Hawaii. He got his PhD from Cornell and researches disaster preparedness is kind of a go-to guy at this point for some kind of demographic profile of this movement to the extent that anything so oriented, at least in many cases, towards self-sufficiency can be understood as a movement. Um, so anyway, uh, here we go. Uh, and so uh, Anna Maria, maybe get us going here. Uh, 
is there a particular way uh, beyond what I've said so far that it's useful to define a, a prepper, which I know is a loaded term. Chris is going to say he doesn't love it. Uh, but maybe, Anna Maria, get us going. Who are we talking about right now? I think that we're talking about the majority of the world right now in terms of those who have the, you know, the, the, the resources to do so. But basically when we think about, and when we think about um, um, prepping, we're thinking about individuals who are practicing self-reliance, um, people who plan to independently survive disaster without government assistance. And most of those people can um, already have provisions um, to last for about 30 days. So these are, you know, um, so I'll just stop there. And I have lots to say on this subject because I think that there are a lot and, and Dr. Ellis will give us some important details. But, you know, there are a lot there. There are many more preppers um, than people imagine. Right. And uh, let me just stay with you for a second, Anna Maria, because it seems to be also the mental image that people have of a prepper is somebody living in maybe upstate New York, you know, with a couple of acres of land and a chicken coop and a this and a that. Um, so. Uh, the idea of being self-reliant or self-sufficient in New York City seems hard to do. It seems everybody's destiny in New York City is kind of interconnected. Maybe you could just say a word or two more about that. Right. Well, the interesting thing about New York preppers is that um, is that they really represent the fact that preppers are much more mainstream, that they're a diverse group of people. New York preppers um, vary in, you know, ranges from, you know, young people to senior citizens. They're people of color. Um, they are um, people across the economic spectrum. You know, they're, they're the working poor to the billionaires. Um, and uh, it, it, it's fascinating because the majority of the, the stereotype is that a prepper is someone who is a white rural male alienated, you know, suspicious of everyone, you know, kind of a, a, the, the redneck stereotype, so to speak. But, you know, preppers are actually quite, you know, very different than that. And the majority of, of preppers that I'm discovering, um, many of them are women. Right. And so, Particularly in New York. Yeah. Uh, and we're going to swing back to that in a second. Although, so, uh, Chris Ellis, I've read some of your dissertation. It's pretty long, so I didn't make it all the way through. Um, but it really is one of the more, one of the, I think, fairly rare attempts to use social science and, and, and statistical research to figure out who this group of people are. Uh, and, and so are there in what are there what you would have considered surprises as you went into this? In other words, you know, given whatever your mental picture was or the mental picture that people around you had, uh, did this study extract some things that kind of didn't fit in with preconceptions? Uh, first of all, absolutely. And I agree with everything that Dr. Bounds has said so far as kind of the, the ubiquitous nature of preppers. They're far more varied than people uh, believe. And what I really wanted to do is take some statistical analysis uh, and look at that aspect specifically to say, okay, let's give a hard quantifiable data uh, for a, a prepper. So I use the term resilient citizen. This is an individual who has 31 days or more preparedness. And then what do those types of individuals look like? Are they fringe? Are they all white rural, like, like Dr. Bounds said, or are they a cross section of America? And what I was able to prove statistically was that they are far more likely to be a cross section of America than previously believed for at least the last 40 years. So one of the things I saw in your study, and correct me if I, if I say this wrong, but my recollection is, to, to, to Anna Maria's earlier point uh, about uh, men versus women, and, and obviously this probably changed during the pandemic. We're probably a little bit out of date right now, but I think it was 69-31, right? 69% uh, men, 31% women? Uh, correct. That was the, the, yes, the bivariate data, correct. 
So, so uh, um, maybe we can talk a little bit more about that. I want to talk to both of you about that. But before we come to back to that, um, Chris Ellis, the other thing is people prepare for the worst, as I said at the beginning. But the worst could be a lot of different things. Um, actually, I remember in the 2019 show talking to one of the guests and saying, well, the most likely thing to, to hit us in the near term is probably a flu-like pandemic, which I both feel really good about and really bad about for obviously uh, obvious reasons. But one of the challenges is, I mean, you can't prepare exactly the same way for everything, right? I mean, nuclear strike, zombie apocalypse, pandemic, just massive solar flare-related outages, huge storms. Are, are, are they all the same kind of preparation, Chris? They are not. So there's there's two things to say on this. One is think of it as you drive your car. So you've got your seatbelt, you've got airbags, you've got anti-lock brakes, and those different things handle for different types of, of things. Your airbags aren't going to do anything for an icy road, but your anti-lock brakes are. And if you have a small, small car crash, even a moderate level car crash, those safety mechanisms will help you walk away unscathed or at least give you a fighting chance at life if it's a larger accident. But they're not going to prevent you from dying if an 18-wheeler hits you at 60 miles an hour and T-bones you at an intersection. Prepping's kind of the same way. You, there's different ways to prep and different disasters to prep for, uh, but it's not going to save you from absolutely everything. But it's going to give you a fighting chance at a lot of the lower level, or even mid-level mid things, depending upon how you prepare. Questions on that? Yeah. Well, so we're going to, uh, and as we go along here, we're going to try to give people what used to be called news you can use. We're going to try to give you some sense of you know what you might want to do if you're kind of entry level, if you're just getting on the on-ramp to preparedness as we go along. But Anna Maria, I also just want to focus on the fact that, I don't know, for a lot of people in this community, for a long time, it was the thing that was coming. You had to prepare for the thing that was coming. For New Yorkers, in the space of exactly 20 years, They've had at minimum three things that are sort of prepper level disasters. You've had 9-11, you've had Sandy, and you've had the pandemic. And, and I'm just wondering how that affects the, the mindset of the people that you've studied. Oh, it's affected um, their mindset significantly. A lot of people come and then in, in New York come to prepping based on their direct experience. They've been in a situation where they have been um, at a disadvantage. And they realize that living in this global city is becoming uh, much riskier for a lot of the reasons that you, you've mentioned, you know, in terms of that we now have, you know, uh, not just one, but we've had a few terrorist attacks. We've experienced natural disasters, technological failures, um, and now with the pandemic. And we've also been concerned about economic stability, instability. So their experience uh, they they become interested in prepping based on being someone who has it has a very negative experience with a, a disaster situation, and so they'd like to better protect their families. I mean, for me, I became interested in prepping as a sociologist. Um, you know, discovering that there was a prepper network here and trying to figure out what they were interested in for all the reasons that you've just explained, because it makes sense for someone to be in a rural area. But how do you go about prepping, you know, in a in a, in a crowded city? Um, but also I became interested in prepping because I noticed my life as a New Yorker started to change and I got tired of being the person with <clears throat> the battery, but no flashlight or, you know, the flashlight, but no battery, or, you know, having peanut butter, but no bread, you know, and all those different things. So I just realized that I needed to explore this topic um, on both a professional and personal level. 
Yeah, you know, you want the flashlight that runs on your own urine, uh, and then you never have to worry about batteries. So, uh, you know, just people's mental picture of New York City, and, and the boroughs, you know, are different in, in many cases, and, you know, I mean, there are probably places where you can have a chicken coop and stuff like that, but people's mental picture of New York City is small apartment, you're keeping wine in the oven because you don't use your oven, you have no wine rack, there's no room for anything. It's kind of hard to imagine that environment as a place where you could store the kind of stuff that we, once again, maybe unfairly associate with prepping. So how, how, how does one be a resilient citizen, to use Chris's term, in a New York City apartment? Um, you know, they're, they're very clever in terms of arrangement of space. You know, there are, there are things that you can buy that you, you know, regular pieces of furniture that you can use as storage spaces like ottomans and end tables, for example. People um, convert closets um, into area, uh, into proper closets. In other words, uh, um, instead of, you know, getting rid of the coats, storing those under your bed, and then, you know, transitioning the closet into an area that contains prepper supplies to be used in emergency only, emergencies only, all sorts of things. They're quite, you know, they're quite inventive. Um, so I think that it does take, you know, a lot of organizational skill. But one of the things that I've discovered that's fascinating about preppers is, you know, that, that there are individuals who are very type A, you know, there are individuals who are very into DIY, you know, so they, they figure these things out. You know, part of survival is, is, um, uh, is uh, the idea of practicing courage, right? The idea of, of you know, trying to, uh, well, Emerson, uh, I, I quote Emerson in the book, and he has this, this great line that I think speaks to prepping, the idea of people who are interested in, were um, being prepared for disaster requires recognizing that character teaches above our will, hmm. right? Yeah, I have a copy of uh, his self-reliance essay here, right here. I always carry it with me, so I, I can check that for you. But, um, but yeah, I mean, no, I, I yeah. think the, the mental piece of this is 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 super important. So, with that in mind, uh, Chris Ellis, as the pandemic hit, uh, you you know obviously had done your own preparations. You thought this through. Uh, a lot of other people, probably including me, were probably floundering a little bit, not knowing what to do, not feeling particularly prepared. I mean, maybe just say a little bit about what it's like going through the pandemic when you've already thought a lot of the problem through more than most people do. Uh, so luckily, it was it was a strange pandemic, one that didn't wipe things out like a, a nuclear bomb would or an earthquake or things like that. So our infrastructure was well intact. And it was more of a isolation where you had to go out almost in your hermetically sealed suit to go get your groceries for those first few weeks where you didn't really know how, how much uh, COVID transmitted. Was it going to be on your groceries? Did you have to wash them to get home, et cetera? So having that the ability to just stay at home if I needed to uh, and not go out uh, was actually re reassuring and, and helpful. I was in upper New York uh, upper state New York at the time. But then as things kind of progressed, you saw that you could still connect with individuals online. And so it was a different type of disaster than is most commonly thought of when you think of an isolating event, FEMA coming in with, with aid, et cetera. Uh, it was just one of those things that was, was, was just different. So if I have um, an underlying bias uh, about preppers, and, and I probably do, but it would probably be, Chris, that they are 
very into self-reliance and that they're kind of concerned with getting themselves and their family through whatever the disaster is, uh, that even though many of the things that they might be worried about could be the products of climate change, I don't see them, I don't imagine them, or or be the products of a nuclear exchange. Uh, I don't see them in my own mind as participants in, say, nuclear freeze or disarmament movements, or I don't see them as climate change activists. I don't see them kind of addressing the larger picture. I feel like they're focused on their chickens and their meat rabbits, uh, and maybe they've bought a shotgun so nobody can come in and take the stuff that they've so carefully assembled. Um, so, I mean, I don't know, deflate or or don't that picture for me. Sure, no problem. Um, so that's definitely the popular depiction, and doomsday preppers was probably one of the worst things that could happen for the movement because it, it very much reinforced this stereotype of these rural individuals who are only for themselves and were very isolatory uh, Etc. And there are those individuals out there. Don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. However, there is a, a, I would at least say a, a complementary group, if not larger group of individuals I call interdependents or homesteaders who are far more likely to assist their neighbors, assist their communities, be into localism, be into things that will help the community writ large, the neighborhood writ large. Uh, I don't see a, a bunch of them in the national movements, but I do see them at the, at least the local community levels to to increase a generalized sense of resilience at the at their at their level. So, Anna Maria, in terms of the pandemic, New York City really was one of the first places that had to deal with it in a really full blown way. Uh, I don't know what did you see there in terms of how the how people who were already definable as preppers who had 31 days uh, of supplies handled it? Uh, and, and how did that affect their ability to kind of get through this? And and I guess the related question is, did they just get through it on their own or, or did they, in fact, help their neighbors? I think that um, Dr. Ellis is right on the money and that one of the, you know, surprising findings that um, you discover once you really, you know, start taking a look at preppers is that they're very different than, you know, you imagine they're not really isolated, alienated people who are suspicious. Many of these individuals are community leaders there um, and they acted as such during the pandemic here in New York serving as, you know, important information resources, you know, since they already, you know, had their provisions, helping their neighbors figure out, you know, what would be a proper mask to buy, how to make your own mask, how to make your own hand sanitizer, you know, what supplies you need to have on hand. So they were terrific information resources, so much that, you know, some preppers, even um, for people who lived in apartment buildings, you know, even organized, you know, um, a information network um, for people who lived in their apartment buildings, making sure, you know, trying to figure out how, you know, they were going to get medicine to elderly people who couldn't go outside, all of those sorts of things. So, you know, they're really very much, they're very good networkers. You know, uh, they engage in urban citizenship. Um, it's a very different, you know, experience then again, the depictions that you have of people hoarding things and, you know, um, being selfish and not really, you know, willing to help, you know, others completely different. And I think that's one of the, you know, I think that's one of the amazing things, you know, about the research during, you know, the pandemic is that I'll, I'll put it this way. One prepper explained to me, you know, he said, you know, people have known I, you know, my neighbors have known that, you know, I've been into prepping for years and, you know, some people, you know, treated me, you know, like I was this, Freak, but I'll tell you what—I've never received so many, um, you know, so many texts and so many email messages at the start of the pandemic from people requesting my help and people now appreciating what what it is I've been doing this whole time. 
Right. Although one of the interesting questions, and I think it's a question probably without an answer at this point, is what happens to all of us who essentially became preppers to one degree or another uh, over the course, over the space of two years? I mean, we we became more attentive to whether we had certain things, certain material comforts, access to hygiene, uh, stuff like that. We got masks, uh, all this kind of stuff. It, it, it seems... Uh, as though some of us will probably revert to exactly who we were before all that. I don't know how many people are going to hang around and and deal with that some more. But but what I do want both of you to do, because you have so much expertise about this, is for somebody listening now who's maybe thinking about that, thinking, yeah, for two years I just paid way more attention to this stuff than I I, I had before. And I should say at a personal level, in the event of a total breakdown of civilization, I'm just going to die uh, because – I have an electric stove, for example. I have no way to make coffee, and after two days without coffee, I'm just going to lie down on a hillside and let vultures, <laughs> vultures eat me. Uh, there's just there's not much I can really do. But I mean, you know, I'll have both of you do this. Chris, maybe start. I don't know if you were talking to somebody who's pretty uninitiated and and has never done anything except maybe reflexively go out and buy toilet paper if they heard we were going to run out of toilet paper. What would you suggest that? you know, one or two or three basic things a person could do to kind of change the equation a little bit? Absolutely. My answer would be start small. So go go and do a little bit more shopping than usual. Maybe you have a two-week supply at home instead of one week. And then pick up a skill, pick up camping, pick up bread making, pick up knitting, pick up something of a third world skill just to get you into that agency where you can feel like you can do things and be more accomplished and feel like you can survive longer for something. Small steps are the way to go for this. Right. Uh, you know, I think that's a great point, Anna Maria. And I think a lot of us think about just sort of, you know, outfitters. Like, we'll just go and get stuff and we'll be outfitted for it. But I think this is something that you've said, too. And particularly if you get stuff or let's say you get a m- more elaborate first aid kit than what you had before so that you really could do some of your own kind of medical attention for to yourself and your family. I mean, you need skills to go with that, too. And you need practice, Right. Right. Um, and again, you know, uh, I'll, I'll use the words of, of one of uh, uh, one of uh, my prepper friends, Marlon. His argument is, um, he says, prepping is about getting comfortable in the discomfort. You know, in other words, training and trying to figure out what to do. So in the moment of an emergency, you're not panicked. Getting back to your question, um, how do you begin? I think you begin with the essential question. Are the most important question is what's essential to you? What do you need to survive? And then you work. From there, you know, you don't go to Costco and buy this tub of goo that they're saying is going to keep your family alive for a month. You know, you need to think carefully about how you live, what matters to you, and what your family uses and depends on throughout the day. That's your first start because you're taking a look at reality and you're responding to, you know, your family's needs and what works for you versus what someone is trying to pitch to you to buy. These are great points. You don't happen to know whether Costco will accept returns on the tub of goo because I bought a really big one yesterday. <laughs> um, it may have been a mistake. All right. So we've been so fortunate to be talking to Anna Maria Bounds, professor of sociology at Queens College, author of Bracing for the Apocalypse, an ethnographic study of New York's prepper subculture. Chris Ellis is a colonel uh, in the U.S. Army based in Hawaii, got his Ph.D. from Cornell, researches disaster preparedness, did some of the really uh, foundational work on, on the demographics of the prepper world. We're going to take a break. You're going to meet a couple of more people uh, who are from this world as well, including somebody that I met on the Connecticut Prepper Network, where I, I am a member on their Facebook page or something.
Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Well, so I think back in 2019 when we did that first show, uh, I joined the Connecticut Prepper Network Facebook page, uh, whatever it's called, something like that. Uh, and, and I, you know, I check in from time to time, even though I'm not really prepared at all and would be a casualty almost immediately. Um, however, uh, it enabled me to meet some people, including uh, when uh, I, I call, called out for some help over the last few days with guests. And that's how we got Hayward Gatch the fourth, a Connecticut-based prepper and the owner of Be Nice Home Solutions. Also with us, Margaret Kiljoy, a prepper and host of the Live Like the World is Dying podcast. Um, Hayward, I want to begin with you. Um, let's just sort of start with what it's like to be you. So 31 days is how you officially qualify for being a prepper. If you can be self-sufficient, you don't have to go out for anything for 31 days, uh, you get your merit badge or something. Uh, how long could you and your family uh, hang out before you needed something? So there's the distinction between uh, surviving and, and thriving. Uh, <laughs> we could certainly be pretty well off for about a month or so. Things will get a little bit tight, but we could go at least six months without uh, needing too much outside help. Now, and what does that look like? If I walked into your abode, would I know right away that you were more prepared than, say, I was? Well, the first thing you'd notice is my house is comically small. Uh, I have just as much square footage in greenhouses as I do in house houses. Um, Most of the living space, then, by extension, looks fairly conventional, at least for what you'd expect in a tiny house. But the more you start to look around, you'll start to see uh, a lot more supplies. Um, One of the previous guests mentioned prepping closets, for example. So in one of my closets, rather than have it lined with drywall, as they conventionally are, I pulled that out and used the studs that exist within the wall to build shelves for canned goods and other sort of things I would need long term. And in addition to that, I put a very heavy emphasis on being able to not only sustain myself, but sustain the people that I care about. Uh, When we first opened our discussion, I had mentioned I'm sort of what you might call a leftist prepper, which is a very community-minded approach to doing something. So rather than individual self-sufficiency, the goal is sort of more a community resiliency added into that as well. Yeah, and I want to stay with that topic as we as we go through this segment or that that notion. So, uh, Margaret Kiljoy, tell us a little bit more about yourself. I, I believe you've been on the grid, you've been off the grid. Um, maybe do what Hayward did, because kind of a sense of how your life looks. Yeah, I I spent most of my adult life living off grid. It's actually, and I spent most of the pandemic living in a cabin that I built myself in the woods. Um, that was off grid. I currently live on grid in a house on a mountain, and I, I greatly prefer it. 
but I, I guess I could probably, well, I could survive a very long time up here just with what I have stored, but you know, I would be unhappy and bored of my food very quickly. I just wouldn't run out anytime soon. Um, so I want to talk a little bit more about the kind of the ideology here, because I, I, I mentioned this in the first segment. It's a lot of the stuff that we worry about, Hayward, just to go back to you talking about your, your leftist orientation, seems to me to be problems that the left has been more worried about than the right. I mean, just general ecological issues, not just climate change, but a lot of other stuff that goes with uh, an ecological mindset, um, worrying about uh, arms buildups that might result in some kind of explosive exchange, you know, tends to be nuclear freeze movements and stuff like that tend to be inhabited much more with people on the left. But I think most people's mental picture of a prepper is somebody who's pretty conservative. I don't know. Can you talk a little bit more about that tension? I know you go back and forth with some of the people on that Facebook page. Yeah. Um, so one of the big things to keep in mind, uh, and it was brought up in the earlier segment, is the uh, National Geographic show Doomsday Preppers was extremely damaging to sort of the, the cultural <laughs> notion of what prepping is. And, and we can think of prepping as, as having existed for as long as there have been people. I mean, people have done seed saving or people have found ways to start their crops early or they've made uh, mutual aid networks, maybe not under that name, but under the concept of being able to help each other out. That's been around essentially forever. This uh, sort of more individual-centered right-wing prepping has got a lot more attention because maybe it's more fun to watch. Um, a lot, a lot of people would say prepping has just been uh, being poor for most people for most of the, our uh, our existence mm -hmm. as a species and um you know it's it's not all just rich white guys out in the middle of nowhere polishing their ar-15s and fantasizing about shooting their neighbors i mean it's not it's a lot more than that it's it's about people who want to find a way to weather problems and that might be different for different bioregions you know out in the pacific northwest it might be fires around here it might be the occasional hurricane or maybe a snowstorm it's it's not always this idea of a doomsday but it's just a sort of a, a building resilience not only for yourself but for your community as well and and that's another important thing with the the distinction between the, the left and right preppers the the right preppers have this idea that they will use their guns to defend their homestead from from invading onslaught um, those are usually people that don't have a whole lot of understanding of how combat works. Like if you're in a house and you're surrounded by people with guns, walls aren't bulletproof. Like <laughs> it's much better to go around and build a community that is able to not only protect each other, but to be able to rely on each other and have strength to survive a problem. And the less desperate people there are out there, the better chances that you're going to have of weathering the, the disaster much better. So, Margaret, I thought I detected a throaty chuckle when I when Hayward mentioned uh, uh, doomsday preppers in National Geographic. What was that chuckle about? Oh, yeah, just because that is the conception that everyone has. You know, this bunker mentality. The two the two types of mentalities people think of is either the bunker mentality or the frontiersman mentality, and those are both incredibly toxic mentalities. You're not going to run out to the woods and live by yourself like eating squirrels that you hunt with a hatchet. Um, you know, I I think preparedness is like if you go out with your friends and you go out and you're like, man, I'm hungry. And one of your friends has purse snacks, you know, like that's, that's prepping to me, right? Like the person who has everything she needs in her purse is, is like on the right track. And, and basically it's 
a lot of it is just you start from there and you build up and you just, you know, you get ready to take care of yourself. The person who has purse snacks shares them with everyone, right? Because otherwise you're just a jerk. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, that's a great example and it, it kind of fits uh, with uh, what Hayward is saying that sometimes it's just like a really big snowstorm that you're worried about, not Mad yeah. Max, end of civilization. You know, and to that point, Margaret, one thing that kind of popped up in my reading that really grabbed me was. You know, I mean, another kind of person who might want to be prepped is somebody who's in a somewhat unstable domestic situation. Uh, in other words, if you are with a potentially ab- abusive spouse or partner or something like that, the idea that, you know, you could grab one thing and get out the door uh, with your kids, like one bag, I mean, it makes a heck of a lot of sense and maybe not all that different from the thinking that goes into worrying about m- other kinds of disasters. No, absolutely. And I, I think people just, they get so caught up and they get hung up on the word prepper. They get hung up on the image of prepper that they forget that this is actually just something that people do. People keep track of like the the interruptions that happen in their daily lives and how they might want to deal with those things. you know. And, and that's actually a, a really good example. There's a lot of people who have go bags and they have go bags, not because they're expecting zombies, but because they're expecting that they might finally have a chance to leave a bad situation or that the situation they're in might just suddenly become untenable. And whether that becomes untenable because of someone you're living with, or if it becomes untenable because of a approaching wildfire, you know, it's, they're very, different situations with different preparedness, but it's still at its core a similar idea. I like the way that you use the term go bag too, which I think bug out bag is like the new term. I like go bag. I'm a I'm old fashioned, uh, yeah. I guess. You know, let me just ask you a- another thing, though. So you've done some pretty substantial uh, life changes. I mean, more than most people might do. You've been off the grid. Now you're on the grid, but you're up on a mountain. Um, I mean, is there a particular way that you can explain your thinking about that? I mean, wh- why? I mean, there, you know, there are other people who are going to be on this show who are probably living closer to towns, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, why did you go to the quote unquote extremes that you've gone to? So I actually it had nothing to do with preparedness. I, I chose preparedness because that was the lifestyle I was leading. I, I was a traveling activist for most of my 20s and into my 30s, and so therefore choose, chose to have very little and lived out of a backpack, and then I lived out of a, a van, and then eventually I moved um, onto a, a farm where I lived with a bunch of people off-grid, lived in a barn, and then built my own cabin. And so I made all of these decisions based on uh, my own desires, sort of uh, culturally and personally, and that led me to where I'm at with preparedness. And actually, it's funny because people talk all the time. People sort of fantasize. I lived in this tiny house I built myself. Like, oh, that's the most prepared thing. And I'm like, no. Now I live in a, a brick house. I live in a brick house with a well. You know, <laughs> I live in a brick house with a well and a pellet stove and a wood burning stove and an oil furnace. It's perfect. Like on grid is actually a better situation. And then the other thing is that living rurally has no. It has advantages and disadvantages. I I often say that the most the single most useful thing in any bad situation is people. People are the most important resource that all of us have access to, and there's a, a lot of advantages to being in dense populations. That people are always think, oh, well, it's much better out in the country. Sometimes for yeah. some things. So you know, Hayward, I had my own list of plans uh, uh, because of Margaret. I've had to cross off live in woods, kill squirrels with hatchet. Uh, apparently that is not a workable plan. It might even be less workable for you because you've got kids. Um, and so do kids change the equation a little bit as you're trying to be ready for stuff? Yeah. So I, I first got into 
prepping more directly um, when I was also a traveling activist in my 20s. Um, I, I spent a de decent amount of time in what you might call eco-separatist communities in Europe, uh, the Hambacher Forest Occupation or Lazad. These are huge places with a lot of folks that wouldn't necessarily identify as preppers, but they're living a, a radically different way of life that I found pretty enticing. Um, and so when I came back to America, I for quite a while lived in an off-grid two-floor treehouse that had running water, electricity, you know, just some, some basic stuff. Um, and around the time I met who eventually became my wife. Uh, she was in medical school, so there was a certain level of, of fanciness that's required to maintain going to medical school. So we built ourselves a tiny house instead, and we just weren't able to uh, go fully off grid, but we're at the point now where we're sort of half and half. So like I have a, I have a solar array on top of the roof that I managed to get secondhand from people. Uh, in the summer, we put corrugated metal on the black shingles for heat shielding, which can reduce the temperature by up to 40 degrees. So I have less of an air conditioning cost. And, you know, that all takes less pressure off of me for when I have to keep my kids fed. And, you know, we often joke about preppers storing beans forever. But one of the cool things with dried beans is you, when you get them wet, they become bean plants. You know, there's all these ways you can reduce that stress for if something goes wrong, you can have an easier time even if you have kids, like half of my yard is edible. And as soon as my kids learned how to walk, they were harvesting berries just around our yard. And now they know how to identify them, even though they can barely speak. So I, we're going to run out of time here. There's so many things I want to ask both of you. But, um, you know, you've both given a lot of advice just kind of in passing here, stuff that would people would be really wise to think about. I just also want to say about the solar array, this drives me crazy. Every time I drive by a big shopping center with a parking lot, I always think, well, why don't there just, you know, solar panels all over this parking lot? It would be drier for people during the rain. And meanwhile, you'd be gathering up power. You could sell it back to the power company. You could have stuff to charge electric cars there. It's just weird how like we don't do that. And then we worry about, you know, Russian fuel <laughs> supply issues and stuff. It's like, ah. And anyway, um, Margaret, um, for people who've been listening and are thinking, well, you know, maybe I'm not quite ready to do some of the stuff that she's talking about, but I want to do some stuff. I, I'm realizing I'm underprepared. So I'm asking you the same question I asked at the beginning of the first segment. I don't know. What are one or two things you would suggest uh, that a person do just to begin changing that equation? I guess I would say try not to go out and panic buy for the current crisis. Uh, do this ahead of time. Like start thinking if you live on the West Coast, start thinking about fire season now. I mean, most of your audience is probably not listening living on the West Coast. But as an example, you know, go out and get your 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 air filters and stuff now before it's the crisis and think about the crises that you're likely to face. Think about the things that you might want to have around that you would you know in your heart you would run out and panic by if you suddenly had to and just have them around ahead of time. You know, it, it's much more about changing your relationship and your attitude to, to than it is to like specifically store specific objects. Although that said, having some extra water around, never, never a bad thing. Yeah, not a bad idea at all. So Hayward, you already followed Margaret's advice. I believe you had N95 masks before the pandemic came. Um, but, but you, I'm asking you the same question for somebody listening right now saying, all right, well, you know, like in the next three months, what could I do? What could somebody do? Yeah, well, I mean, certainly I think Margaret's advice is very important um, to just go in a different direction just so we can cover as much ground as possible. I'd say talk to your neighbors. I mean, it's really important to 
to not have people all around you that you're suspicious of. Because in the event that you have some kind of a crisis, you're much better off if you're all together. You know, humans didn't become the dominant species because we have, you know, sharp teeth, sharp claws, and we're really fast. You know, we're, we're slow, our teeth are flat, our claws aren't really that good, and at least I'm a little doughy around the middle. We became the dominant species by being really good at teamwork. And, you know, that sort of thing is, is going to be unbelievably essential. And we um, talked earlier about how COVID sort of put people in this prepping mindset, but I think it exposed a lot of serious problems with our structures as they exist. And, you know, that's basically like the training wheels for what climate change is going to give us. So we, we have to start doing something. Right. And the neighbor thing is great, too. I just do want to say on a personal note, uh, as some listeners know, I went through a period where my partner was in the hospital for 10 and a half months. Uh, and my neighbors, you know, I don't know, we, we're not in a densely packed kind of situation. But my neighbors, the minute they found out about it, they were just like all over me. What can we do? You want us to walk your dog? I'm thinking, you don't want to walk my dog. But they really wanted to do something. People want to help each other. I think we live in a world where we tell ourselves a, diff a very different story uh, about the people around us. But I... Uh, and I think that's really great advice. Make sure you know your neighbors well enough so they might know how they could help you and how you could help them. All right. So great, uh, great stuff from both of you. Um, thank you very much. We're going to kind of go to another segment here. Uh, but we've been uh, talking to two people with a lot of experience uh, in all of this stuff. Hayward Gatch IV, Margaret Killjoy. Uh, she's a prepper and host of Live Like the World is Dying podcast. He's the owner of Be Nice Home Solutions. We're back. Time to say thank you. Thank you to Kat Pastor. She's our technical producer, and she is great. Uh, Lily Tyson is the senior producer of The Colin McEnroe Show, and she's the producer of this particular episode. Uh, and joining us now uh, for our third and final segment, Melissa Scholes-Young, an associate professor in literature at American University and a writer whose most recent novel, The Hive, features a character who preps. Uh, I should say, before we even get into this, if you listen to our show a lot, you might remember that uh, during the pandemic, we talked to speculative fiction writers. It was just amazing how many things about the pandemic, right down to things like people baking a lot more, that speculative fiction writers had already imagined and figured out was going to happen. They should hire some of those people to work at the CDC. Uh, but, um, Melissa, one of the things that you did, I think, in order, I assume, to maybe prepare to write this character was attend Prepper Camp. Tell us about Prepper Camp. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, Prepper Camp is one of my favorite things to talk about. It's uh, I'm not making this part up. I write fiction, but this is absolutely real. Um, it's a three-day wilderness skill building workshop. It's in rural North Carolina. And I went as novel research for The Hive. And I took classes. I interviewed preppers. I really immersed myself in the culture. And I went to the workshop thinking it was going to be maybe a gun or a trade show. Uh, and it turned out to be more of a conservation camp. And the Feller family that I write about in the hive, they'd fit in really well there. Uh, in one of the workshops, we walked the forest. They taught us what we could eat. Um, I learned a lot about beekeeping, which I was already familiar with from growing up in a pest control family. But there was also composting and solar energy. And Grace, who's the main character in the hive, is a, a survivalist. And she wants to live in conjunction with the land. But 
she also, the, the question I was asking is that line between paranoia and preparedness. And what Grace learns is that her fear starts justifying kind of that othering so we can dehumanize and, and it's a dangerous line. So part of the reason I went to prepper camp was also trying to understand my characters and what motivated them and, and how important community was in saving them. So I, I should say the the piece for the believer, um, which is called Homestead, I think, uh, is uh, terrific and hilarious. Your parents are especially hilarious. We should say you, you went to prepper camp with your parents. I love that your dad like sign, wants to sign up for all that <laughs> kind of gun stuff and, and everything. Your mom wants to sign up for the beekeeping courses. Uh, and there's a way in which kind of some standard gender differences differences seem to be playing out there. But you know what? Well, yeah, go ahead. I, yeah. I did tell them. I told them when I was going. Like this is novel research. Uh, they were going there to. Assess their skills. And, and this kind of prepping to me isn't as unfamiliar because I grew up in the country in rural Missouri. And this was just practicality. It was just how they raised me. And, and you're right. There was some tension there between my agenda at prepper camp and, and what my parents were going there for too, that, that I'm glad was humorous. <laughs> but no, it was, it was funny, but also very serious too. And I think, mm-hmm. I assume it's in that piece. I don't know where I read this, that, you know, when the pandemic hit, there was like a family compound in Missouri that you were invited to come to, right? Right. And I live in an urban environment. Uh, I was raised in a, in a rural country environment. And I think we often think that being outside the urban environment will mean that we're more prepared. Um, but the fact is preppiness has changed as it's become sort of mainstream. Prepping is, you know, someone who's just preparing for disasters and we're having more and more disasters with climate change. So I don't know that it matters anymore where you live. I think it matters what you're doing to you know, prepare and, and think about your life um, as one that has value that you want to extend rather than uh, thinking about, you know, the, the, sometimes the polarization that goes along with the prepping community. Right. So I think one of the things that, that stays with me anyway from your piece, and I think it stayed with my producer, Lily Tyson, too. So one of the this couple that's kind of running this prepper camp, one of them is named Survivor Jane. I, I think that I assume that's as opposed to Calamity Jane, you've become Survivor Jane. But um, <laughs> but one of the things she says is mental health is key. Mental health is a, and I've heard that from other people who are really serious preppers slash survivalists that don't underestimate your mental state. And the importance of that in terms of whether you live or die or thrive or suffer. Um, And it seems as though you kind of embrace that idea, too. You know, it surprised me what I learned there. And I agree with you. Survivor Jane focused on this idea of being mentally strong as well as physically strong, of being mentally prepared as well as physically you know, prepared. And I, I think that's true. We need a kind of community care. Um, what worried me at, at prepper camp and what worries me in some prepper communities is this idea that only the strong will survive. And, you know, to me, that's a mentality that's ableism at its worst. And it's saying that the strength is only defined by physical prowess and anyone who lacks it isn't valued, you know, in the same way. And I think we have more responsibility to take care of the most vulnerable in our community, or we aren't taking care of all. Um, One of the scenes that was my most favorite to write was when Grace, the character in my novel is packing bug out bags for her whole family. And then she's putting in the essentials, right? All the things you absolutely need to survive. And then she starts thinking, what are they going to do? Like, what are we actually going to do to keep ourselves distracted and calm and peaceful and ready? And she starts putting in individual items for each of her daughters. Um, And it's just this tender moment of thinking about what we actually need, not just, you know, in our physical sense, but also in the people around us. How do we all survive together? 
Right. I do think we saw some scary absences of the kind of attitude that you're describing during the pandemic. I mean, I certainly encountered a lot. Oh, the people who are dying are really old, so it's not that big a problem. Or the people who are dying have comorbidities. They're diabetics. They have right. asthma and stuff like that. There was a sense that that was like breakage. Somehow <laughs> there was like, oh, okay, well, so judgment. There were, yeah, yeah. There was yeah. Just, and that idea of like bringing everybody along. I mean, I want that to be the attitude of bringing everybody along because I said, as I said earlier in the show, after two days with no coffee, I'm probably just going to lie down and die. But um, but if we can't think <laughs> that way, uh, you know, if we can't, if somebody doesn't bring me coffee, you know, I'm going to be in a lot of trouble. And and it is, I don't know. I you're the you're the fiction writer. As you think about that, um, do you, do you think that we have maybe more humanity than we give ourselves credit for? I hope so. And I think exactly that type of judgment uh, that you mentioned is, is our humanity breaking uh, this idea that someone should die or could die because they didn't do enough. I, that is what I fear the most, actually, that breakdown in, in our care and community. Um, I think writers, you know, we our superpower is empathy. And our job is actually to care for our characters and ask those big, hard questions. And I will also make you coffee, Colin, during the <laughs> pandemic and teach you how to make it uh, for yourself. Uh, these are skill building things that we also need. But I think you're right. Writers watch and we have this kind of insatiable curiosity. And my work always begins with a question and I'm always writing toward that question. So in the hive, the question was about preparedness versus paranoia. And Grace, who's the mother, she embraces prepping. She wants to manage her fears, but she's also trying to ensure her family's survival. Uh, so it's about her identity and these shifts in the, her daughter's places in the world too. But you know, they do share values, the ones that will help them survive, like grit and hard work. Uh, but they disagree about those political institutions that will preserve those values. So for me, fiction and the hive are these kind of perfect reads right now for politically divided time in our country. Uh, and I hope that these kind of stories can heal us. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, we have access to worlds like prepper community and prepper camp that we might not otherwise spend time in. Right. Uh, Station Eleven was helpful for me because I realized I could join a, a Shakespeare troupe in that situation. Um, if you so, have if you have talent, you do have <laughs> to have some musical talent, it seems, in Station Eleven. But right. it's a brilliant, absolutely brilliant book. All right. Uh, Melissa Scholes-Young uh, is an associate professor in literature at American University, a writer whose most recent novel, The Hive, features a character who preps and a lot of these questions. Thanks for being with us. Thanks to the rest of you for listening. Go buy a generator or something. Trying to tell you what to be Oh no, oh no, not me But if mankind is to survive The people left alive They're gonna have to build this world And you